take thou authority to preach the gospel. Indeed, I look upon all the world as my parish. Good afternoon. Welcome to our latest episode of Field Preachers slash webinar Zoom room discussion with uh, Dr. J. Moon. I am so grateful that when I emailed, you responded and we're like, sure, let's make this happen. Um, <laughs> for those of you that don't know, um, Jay served, it was 13 years, right, as a missionary, largely mm-hmm. in Ghana, West Africa with his family and is presently a professor of evangelism and church planting and the director of the Office of Faith, Work and Economics. Um, at Asbury Theological Seminary. You've authored four books, including Intercultural Discipleship, Learning from Global Approaches to Spiritual Formation, and edited four books, including Entrepreneurial Church Planting, Innovative Approaches to Engage the Marketplace. And I read the book that you just did for Exponential and a really amazing article kind of based on the book um, from Mark DeMaz, The Coming Revolution in Church Economics. So you are kind of our go-to person when it comes to <laughs> church planting with an entrepreneurial perspective. So um, let's just dive right in. So Jay, how did you become interested in this whole entrepreneurial church planting model? Yes, Rachel, thanks first for having me on here. I look forward to our good discussion and conversation. Um, you know, as you mentioned, I was a missionary 13 years. So the really, the, the basis of this whole discussion is really a missional focus. If we don't have missional uh, vitality in mind, then the whole financial equation is just putting off the inevitable. At some point, the church is going to close. So we need to have a two-pronged approach, both you know, financial viability but also missional vitality. So as a missionary for 13 years, that is really my heartbeat of, you know, how can we missionally engage this generation? Uh, Dr. Tim Tennant, president of Asbury Seminary, has said the uh, North America is the fastest growing mission field. It's not the largest by any stretch, but it's the fastest growing. And we think the nexus of that mission field is the marketplace. I have some business leaders that say, you know, if business folks could wake up to their missional calling in the marketplace, it could literally transform the world. And I believe it. So as I was doing my uh, MBA studies, and I have a few small businesses on my own, uh, I've been trying to focus in, you know, what would a missional approach to the marketplace look like? How can we engage people in the marketplace where most people spend the majority of their active waking day so that where they work is not simply like a functional transaction that they get money for bread on the table, but it also has a missional focus that there's a missional calling that people can live out in the marketplace. So combining those, a, uh, a missional heart with uh, financial viability that has led us at least to think through entrepreneurial approaches and alternate financial models. Great. Well, let's go deeper into these entrepreneurial approaches. I love the article where you use the acronym MINCE to talk about different ways that you can attack this or approach it. Uh, Can you walk us through those and tell us which ones might be the easiest to pursue in this season of COVID and social distancing for a lot of planters that are just starting out and want to be really strategic about the uncertainty with coronavirus right now? Okay, very good. Well, uh, yeah, I'll talk about the five models, and we've also added a sixth one, um, because what that points out is that this isn't the be-all, end-all, right? This is like a start of a conversation, and my hope is that we kind of awaken missional passion 
and start to think through how can we engage strategically in the marketplace. Uh, the, the acronym M-I-N-C-E is MINCE. Um, in order to find out you know, which is the easiest and most appropriate, we developed a grid that has like a Y-axis and X-axis. The uh, Y-axis is uh, relational networks. You know, church planters live or die on relational networks. So everything from networks are wide open, that you have lots of contacts in the community that you can follow up on, et cetera, to networks are closed. And that can happen, unfortunately, at times that uh, people kind of burn bridges behind them. And then on the x-axis, there's um, um, financial liquidity. Now, that's a big term, but it just basically means how quick can you convert things to cash based on the resources that you have. Everything from very liquid, so like cash itself is the most liquid, to very frozen. You know, assets that you have that are tied up, maybe like buildings or real estate, you know, that kind of thing. So using those two axes, there's an intersection of these four different possibilities. And that is the best rubric we have to decide where's the most strategic place that you could start in order to think through if ties and offerings are not enough, how can I have my church survive or how could I even plant my church? Okay. So the first one M is to monetize underutilized resources. So if you think through lots of churches have assets that they don't even utilize very often. I mean, think about the buildings that are just sitting there most of the week that are cooled and heated, et cetera. And this is a huge asset that could be used for things like a co-working space, could be used for Airbnb. And even though um, Airbnbs are struggling right now, they are coming back. And my hunch is that they're going to come back with uh, a strong roar. Um, And I say that from personal experience as well as those that I know of. But if you think about churches that have all this space out there, how could they utilize that that resource? Um, I know a church in Little Rock, Arkansas, that has a parking lot. Um, a circus comes to town twice a year and pays $6,000 each time. So they get $12,000 out of the use of that parking lot. And, and that's just a, a resource that's there that can be monetized. And monetized basically means just turn it into cash. Um, So that's the first one, thinking through inside the church, what resources are there that are underutilized, that could be activated, could be monetized for, you know, financial gain in order to increase missional viability. Uh, The second, the I is for incubating new businesses. So this is thinking about what are some businesses that could be incubated particularly amidst, like in the gig economy, people are used to patching together different kind of jobs. What kind of businesses are out there? Um, lots of people you know, are thinking through different approaches. And I've got, like I mentioned, five small businesses that I operate on the side. And, and one of the reasons I want to mention offhand, one of the reasons that I do these businesses, I'm a professor at a seminary, which I'm around Christians all day, which is great but I teach evangelism and church planting. So I need to get outside the bubble, right? And what these businesses do, it connects me with real relationships to those who are unchurched or de-churched. And oftentimes it lends itself to, you know, ministry, to prayer, to counsel with folks that are outside the Christian bubble. And it's one of the strategic things when you incubate a business, all of a sudden you've got like these supply chains and you have these distribution networks. Uh, All these folks are in your life that open up networks for church planting. So 
there's lots of like business possibilities that could be incubated. If you want to talk about a few, um, I could share about that. And then the uh, N stands for nonprofits. So this is where a nonprofit forms a mission arm of the church. Now, a church is a nonprofit, but a church can start another nonprofit. And the, the strategic part of that is when a church starts a nonprofit, this becomes a mission arm, and that nonprofit can receive grants, receive donations from sources that would not give to a church. And what happens is instead of, like, suppose you have a heart to minister to the homeless or to, um, you know, dealing with sex trafficking or whatever, you can get grants or donations from people who would not give to your church, but would give to that nonprofit. And then this church operates the nonprofit, but there's autonomy. So there's separate, you know, there's uh, differentiation legally and tax-based. But what it does is instead of that becoming a negative line item, for the mission budget of the church, right? That becomes a separate line item outside of the church budget, and therefore it makes it work. Um, yeah. I'm going to jump in really quickly here because yeah. I absolutely love that point. And I feel like right now during COVID, this is something that every church planter, if you're a year or two or more in or considering planting, should really take seriously because I know a church plant that. Um, has been around for a while, but they've done a feeding program. They're up to feeding like 600 people a week and they just can't sustain it. So if they were a nonprofit, you're right, they would have access to way more grants and funding that could help offset the cost, even of things like the salary support of the person that's organizing all of this for the church. Um, So it's really a great time to think about what that would look like. I know another church plant incorporated as a separate 501c3 for their preschool so that they could receive external funding that could help provide scholarships for families right now. So it really does help. And even in the Methodist church, Methodist um, church members that are going to an established church might feel more comfortable giving to another Methodist church's 501c3 than to their actual church entity um, because they believe in that mission or outreach program that their own church isn't able to support. So yeah, in many ways, churches are ideally suited to form nonprofits. I mean, for one, a church is a nonprofit. So they understand that world a little bit, you know, how the, the structures go and the meetings and the organization. But for two, um, oftentimes churches have lots of talented people that know things like bookkeeping or accounting or finance, but they're underutilized in the church and they can be greatly utilized in a nonprofit. Uh, for three, you have like a captive audience. So if you need volunteers, you know, th- there they are. They're right in front of you. And if there's a missional calling, they, they get excited about this. Um, and as you mentioned, Rachel, um, when you have a nonprofit and it's autonomous from the church, if people from the church are, are salaried from that nonprofit, they can get a living wage out of that. And if you're utilizing church space, then you can rent that space at market rates. And as a result, it becomes another income stream that can help the church in its mission. That's so huge. Do you have any recommendations when someone's starting a nonprofit and they're looking at the board makeup? Um, what percentage of those board members need to be deeply tied in? I guess a fear church planters have is, oh gosh, if, if it's a separate nonprofit, they'll go rogue and maybe change <laughs> the mission or change everything up on us. I mean, should the pastor be on the board of the planter be on that board of directors? Who else? Any guidelines or suggestions? Yeah. So one of the, the key pieces here, which will come out again in the next piece, we talk about co-vocational, um, is think about teamwork 
because if you think about you're a church planter and the stuff I'm talking about today, it just puts another load on your back. That's not my intent. Um, all the businesses that I have, I have teams, right? And I've had business ideas that I have just waited for a couple of years until the right team came along. And I would say the same about a nonprofit. Do not try to put all this on your own shoulders, but pray for, look for, search for a team that has different skills that you don't so that the pastor is not the one that's, you know, planting the church and organizing the nonprofit, you know, calling volunteers, doing the tax filing, you know, all that. That's just unrealistic. And it's a great way to burn out. So the, the pieces that I'm talking about today, think about teamwork and think about people who have skills, assets, abilities that God has given them that have not been fully utilized yet. But if you ask them to, they really would jump up to do that. So I would recommend that the pastor not become the uh, director of the nonprofit, but it's autonomous. But the church should have uh, at least some representation on the board. And there's some resources that are strictly about this whole churches forming nonprofits. And if you have an interest, I can send you like a resource about that. That would be great. Thanks. And that is like a perfect segue into your C, which is co-vocational pastoring, right? Yeah. Yeah. Co-vocational pastoring. Um, this is on the rise. Now, let me just define it a little bit. So you've heard the term bivocational where somebody has two roles. They serve as a pastor um, or a seminary professor, but also an engineer or something. Um, the bivocational term, though, indicates it's temporary and it's a second choice. Until the church can afford to pay your salary, then you'll leave that second job and then go fully into ministry. Co-vocational says this. It's not a second choice. It's a first choice. It's not temporary. It's more long-term uh, because you recognize the great missional potential of being engaged with people in the marketplace, uh, as I mentioned earlier with the businesses that I have. So the co-vocational pastor says, even if the church could afford to pay my salary, I still want to have a job outside the church because it engages me in networks of relationships that are unchurched and de-churched in order to um, you know, have a missional focus. So lots of opportunity to think through um, pastors, you know, church planters, what kind of skills and giftings do you have? What success have you had somewhere else? Um, you know, think through where were you before you were pastoring? What kind of job were you doing? And this has been a journey for me personally. I was a professional engineer for seven years before we became a missionary. And, and I thought I was going to leave that behind, you know, but when I come back home and we start looking at different opportunities, um, I now have a business. We design and build tree houses, <laughs> luxury tree houses, using engineering to do that. And in the process, it engages all these people. So and I don't know what your background is, but I can guarantee that you have some skill, some ability some asset that can be utilized in order to be a co-vocational pastor. And it's not a, a second rate thing and it's not a, just a temporary, but think of it more long-term approach because it has both missional um, you know, connection to it, but also financial viability. I like that. That's huge. And seeing it as a co-vocational. So when you're in that other environment working, you're still planting, you're still networking, you're still hearing people's stories and um, getting to know them, doing relational one-to-ones, but you're also all receiving means. all of that income. I know that this is a really unpopular 
topic with Methodist Planters <laughs> and Stretchwood Seminary Bills and wanting that full-time appointment. But, um, you know, my husband right now, he's has a part-time appointment and then he does business brokering, which is all about networking, helping people during COVID who are struggling and want to sell their business, get a fair price for it and find, you know, a future with all of the stress of, um, of their own situation. So it can be a blessing too. Very much so. So, you know, our Office of Faith, Work and Economics at Asbury Seminary is really to help people think through how can they live out their missional calling in the marketplace so that as your husband, you know, is, is part-time in the church, part-time, you know, at uh, his business, he's always full-time in ministry wherever he is. So it's just different venues. So thinking through how to strategically and theologically, missionally uh, conceptualize and carry out your work, um, you know, it's ministry wherever you are, but think that through so that there's some congruence in that. Absolutely. That's great. Um, and so what does E stand for? Yeah, E stands for entrepreneurial church planting. And this is where someone... Um, starts a business in order to create a venue for a church plant. Like you may start a coffee shop or a bakery or some have started, you know, whether it's a pub or a ax throwing or it's, um, you know, lots of different possibilities. And what happens is the venue becomes the uh, church plant venue. So again, you have a business manager who runs the operations. And what happens is the business keeps the lights on and the church planter then gets to leverage all those relationships that come to be a part of that business. And you're not worried about getting the lights on. The, the business does that and you get to connect with people. Now, some people, instead of starting a business, they think through their own business and look at that as a missional context and meet with people in that business off hours. So there's a United Methodist church planter in Nicholsville who uh, his church plant meets at 11 p.m. on Thursday nights. So that you heard it right. That's 11 at night <laughs> on Thursday. Wow. Because he is a waiter at a restaurant and ministers to all the other waiters all week. They're ready to get off work and to chill out a little bit on Thursday nights after work at 11. And they meet and they have um, scripture reading. They have some worship, prayer. Some of these uh, folks are not even believers yet, but several have come to be followers of Christ through that because what happens, the, the business becomes the venue where they're comfortable. Uh, once they get off work, they're ready to meet right after hours of the church. So um, that's the, the fifth approach. And we've written a lot about that and tried to give examples for it as well. Um, there's a, a sixth one, because I've had people say to me, you know, on that grid that I described, you know, um, network access, as well as financial liquidity. Some have said to me, say, well, bro, you know, I'm not even on that chart. Like I am, <laughs> like our finances are so frozen um, and our relational networks are so closed. Like I'm not even on there. So <laughs> the sixth one is called decentralized church. Now this goes by many different names. Some people call it simple church. Um, you know, us Methodists, we call that fellowship bands. You could use the terms organic church. There's um, other terms, you know, that are, are thrown out there. But basically what this means is that the church becomes decentralized. And instead of the church building become the central location where everybody has to congregate, they can be decentralized in different locations. Some could meet at a business setting, like at a restaurant. Some could meet in houses. They could meet in other venues. 
Um, and, and that's approach I've actually seen um, several churches survive through that. And some churches that I know that were about to die out um, have kind of tied into the, you know, the uh, multi-site kind of models. That's kind of like a decentralized aspect of this where they've actually survived because they've attached themselves to a multi-site church and that's helped them stay financially viable, but also develop leadership. They, they couldn't afford a full-time pastor, but they can develop leadership in the midst of it. So that's a sixth one. If you're like totally off the chart, you know, this is an, another approach to look at. That's awesome. So with all of these approaches, um, there are concerns or things to, you know, red flags that you want to be aware of perhaps. And in your article, you talked about things like tr the triple bottom line, accountability. Can you tell us more about that? If we want to be entrepreneurial church planters, what are some things to be cautious about? Yeah, these actually come from uh, a business person who was actually a really good theologian. You probably recognize his name was John Wesley, who uh, <laughs> people know him as a theologian, but actually they may not recognize he made about four to five million dollars in today's money in his businesses, which is a bit ironic that the Methodist church doesn't allow, you know, elders to be business folks if the, <laughs> the leader did, right? Um, so Wesley you know, created a significant amount of cheddar here, you know, and through these businesses that he had. And he recognized the great good that was created, but he also recognized the potential dangers. So he gave some precautions uh, while encouraging people. And he even said um, that those who fear God, one of the best things they could do is to know how to use this great asset of money. But he also had some precautions. And one of those was what we call today the triple bottom line, and uh, Wesley described it as make sure that you don't just have financial profit as the single metric of success, but make sure that there's social capital and, phys and spiritual capital that's also created as a result of your business. Okay, so if you've been in business for a while, sometimes people will say this to you. Hey, say, hey, man, don't take this personal. This is just business. And, and what that means is they're about to stick it to you, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm thinking in the back of my mind, you know, if you're going to lose a friendship and you only gain financial profit. That's a bad deal. Don't do it. Right. So what we say is that make sure that every decision is not just weighed upon how much money do I make like a financial profit, but also weigh the spiritual capital that is gained or lost as well as the social capital that is gained or lost. And Wesley gave some specific examples about how to carry that out. Um, another piece that Wesley did was this accountability. So this is not foreign to Methodist, right? The accountability groups, the bands, et cetera. But what Wesley did, he asked the entrepreneurs to meet once a week, and they'd ask this kind of question like this, how much money did you make and what did you do with it? <laughs> so that's like getting right up in the grill, right? Say, so, okay, what did you make this month or this week and what did you do with it? So it's basically saying that we need accountability with the use of our money, um, and there's lots of ways to gain that accountability. Of course, we have yearly audits and those type of things. But more regular type of accountability measures are really helpful for that. Um, and that's another measure to make sure that we stay on track because we can too easily deceive ourselves. Um, you know, another approach is this whole, and we've been talking about like team, like orientation, right? So instead of thinking of ourselves as like a lone church planter and we get out there and do our own business by ourselves, the whole Lone Ranger motif or the sole entrepreneur is really a myth. <laughs> you 
even the folks that you may think of, like Steve Jobs, you know, Bill Gates, these folks had partners. They had team people, like Steve Jobs had Wozniak, who was really the brains behind you know the whole Apple operation. Um, so think through not just yourself, because you have certain giftings and abilities, but you also have certain weaknesses, and so do I, and certain liabilities. So thinking through, how can you make sure we don't just like you know play onto our strengths all the time, because the overuse of a strength leads to a weakness. And pastors see that a lot, right? The overuse of your strength area can lead to your weakness, your, your burnout. So you need other people to complement that in order to make sure that you know, you stay healthy and flourishing. I love that. So that brings up another question in my mind, because, you know, in order to figure out the right team that you need to take on these entrepreneurial approaches, it's really important to know yourself. And do you have the gifts necessary to kind of be an entrepreneurial church planter? And I was really fascinated. I think it was like page 32 of your book where you said, hey, the people that you think might be the best at this maybe aren't the best. This is the kind of person you want to look for. Can you say more about that? So that was listening in can say, okay, that sounds like me or maybe this is not my calling. Yeah, good. Um, it's a great question because oftentimes people think the entrepreneur is this highly caffeinated, type A, aggressive, extroverted kind of person, right? <laughs> and it turns out that that's false. <laughs> um, and this is based on like 20 years of research, not my own, but others have done research where they tried to find the characteristics of good entrepreneurs. And they finally gave up and found out that what entrepreneurs do have in common is, are two things. One is how they think. And then second, once they receive information, how do, what do they do with it? Okay, so it comes down to... Um, and, you know, Goldsby wrote a paradigm about uh, entrepreneurs receive lots of information from concrete to abstract. So the concrete information are like demographics, um, you know, who's below the poverty line, where's the greatest need, surveys, et cetera. The abstract are the values of a people, their motivations, their ideations, their, their aspirations, et cetera. And entrepreneurs collect a lot of that information. So either it's concrete or abstract you know, usually one or the other. And then once they get it, they do one of two things. They either connect that information with other people and places and buildings, et cetera, okay? Or they do the second, which is explore new possibilities. They put new combinations together. And most innovation is copy and tweak. So you copy something and you just kind of tweak it a little bit. So you kind of connect it in a different way. Kind of the way this guy who was a metallurgist, he made these little metal pieces and he went to visit his friend who was, you know, he was a winemaker. And as his friend was like pressing this, this uh, grapes, he said, well, what would happen if I took like a piece of parchment and put my little metal piece under there and the grape juice would kind of push on it. And that's how Gutenberg developed the printing press. So he saw the same thing as others and thought different thoughts. He took what was already there, copied it, and just kind of tweaked it a little bit. So that's what entrepreneurs tend to do. Um, gather information, just be really curious, um, either like concrete or abstract. And then once you get that information, think of new ways to connect with other people, places, buildings, or explore new combinations, new, new uh, iterations of what's already out there. Now, the good thing about this, Rachel, is that entrepreneurial thinking can be taught. It, it can Yay. really be taught. 
Uh, it, it's that's really good news. <laughs> that's good now, news. <laughs> now I really love this because um, some people say, "Well, I know entrepreneurial families, so it must be like inherited." Um, and I know that it's not inherited because like most of my kids are entrepreneurs, but the reason is we talk about it a lot. So when we get together and some of these businesses, we're partners together, right? So it's not that they're born with this, but we talk about it a lot and they have questions and then we bring it up. So in other words, you can learn this process of thinking and then exploring or connecting, and you can learn how to apply this into church planting. Because this is not just something that you're either born with or not. It's something that you can be taught. Um, and one unique observation is that there are many church planters that actually that learning process is not strenuous. In other words, they already lean into, you know, this kind of way of collecting information. And they already lean into either exploring new possibilities or connecting with new people. So learning how to do entrepreneurship as well isn't a, a stretch for them. I love that. And I, I think you're completely right. Sometimes we're assessed as church planters because we don't quite fit in. We ask too many questions or we <laughs> want to innovate and do things differently. Um, and that's beautiful. And, and to touch on a question that's come in um, through Corey about churches without a building, like how do you do this based on what you said about the entrepreneurial thing, just looking at what's around you, tweaking it a little bit. I know of a really effective church planter who was in a rural part of Iowa and looked around and said, there's nowhere for people to gather. If they want to have a big birthday party or a wedding or something, they can't gather. So he took a warehouse and converted it into an event location and people, and they made tons of money, like tons of money. And, yeah. and he just worked, they worship there, right? Um, so that follows along with your entrepreneurial churches locate inside the marketplace, but his worship leader didn't get paid by the church. He was allowed to be the bartender for all these weekend events <laughs> and the tips were his salary and he made tons yeah. of money. So it was a great way to build relationships, look at your community and say, what's working, what's not, what's needed and to respond. Um, well, so here, here's the fun thing. I just think this through a little bit. Um, as you're an entrepreneur, what you really do is you solve people's problems. So if you solve my problem, I'll pay you money for that. I'll be happy to pay you money for it, you know? <laughs> um, so one uh, theologian, DeCoster, said this, that it perhaps is what God had in mind with the great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you're trying to solve people's problems, that means you're staying up late at night thinking about your neighbor's problems. And you're thinking of ways to solve them. Wow, that sounds like the great commandment. So that's not a far stretch from pastor's you know, providing, like you mentioned, like a wedding space, or even in this COVID time, I've started, I've got some new contracts on doing research, you know, like people now have time to talk to other people that they didn't before, right? So we're doing research, connecting with people. Um, there's lots of new possibilities out there. I, I think this, this COVID situation provides, of course, it's a difficult situation to provide hardship, but there's also opportunities here that I think the church would have been forced to kind of think this way maybe five to 10 years from now, but COVID just kind of exposed our weaknesses and, and pushes us a bit further than we would have otherwise. So this is really good time to start thinking through, okay, if I don't have a building, what do I have, right? Kind of like the parable of the talents. Um, everybody's given something, like nobody has nothing. Some have five and three and one, but everybody's given something. So instead of sitting on our assets, I'd be careful I say that, instead of sitting on our assets, you know, uh, think through how can we take the asset that God has given us and then utilize that for growth? I think that's both growth in the kingdom 
spiritually, you know, socially, but also financially. Absolutely. I mean, I know of some church planters that they don't have a building, but they've started right. a podcast, which is free. But if people want, you know, more daily time to talk or have devotionals or additional information, you know, they use Patreon. And so people are willing to pay five bucks a month to every single day have a spiritual guide to help them with their anxiety or depression or grief, whatever they're experiencing. And so you're meeting a need, you're solving someone's problem, you're being the church and you might not have a building, but it helps you kind of go global and, um, and minister to those in a really difficult time. So, or um, yeah, very much church plants that don't have a building or finding other churches that have space with high speed Wi-Fi, which is not always a sure thing in a Methodist church, but they're, Office, office buildings that have shut down because people can't afford to lease space anymore can go to that church for a fraction of the price, have socially distanced workspace, mm-hmm. a work co-op. And so again, you're solving a problem and, and the planter is kind of the broker there between the community and this established church that might not want all the liability on their shoulders, but the planters I've met are more risk averse than your average pastor. And so they're okay <laughs> with that. And I'm um, sticking yeah. their neck out a little bit to make something happen to help. No, very much so. I, I do know some pastors that actually uh, planted based upon having Wi-Fi, and then people coming in and these are entrepreneurs and started to gather these people together and provide like collective workspace for people. So yeah, there's lots of possibilities out there. And uh, I think this is like great, creative time for us to think through. Uh, This doesn't catch God by surprise, this whole COVID thing. Uh, So this is a time to think through, allow the Spirit of God to speak to us and incubate new ideas. At Asbury Seminary, once a year, we have, we call it the Marketplace Summit, where we ask students to pitch a business idea that is a social entrepreneurship. So in other words, it creates financial profit, but also social and spiritual profit. And uh, sometimes there are church plants that they launch and there's a $10,000 cash prize for people to start to, to launch these ideas. So what we're trying to do is to get people to start thinking this way, thinking through what if there are, there are other financial models in order to support the church um, and not just ties and offerings alone. And some of these engage us in the marketplace in meaningful ways. That's great. Something that I've encouraged church developers to do who are trying to figure out how to recruit and find new church planters is, you know, go to your local universities in your state and see who has a social entrepreneurship program and offer them some type of internship over the summer where they can try out their idea if it's a missional um idea that can, you know, provide for the needs of others and then partner them, have that team-based co-planting, co-vocational approach um, because they're already innovative. They already want to make a difference and think outside of the box. Uh, Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit, because you mentioned this in your book as well. I really love the graphic. I wish I could put it up on the screen, guys, but I'll I'll try to figure out a way to get it to all of you. Um, With the artist, the evangelist, the builder, social scientist, that whole paradigm of yeah, where you I might fall as an entrepreneur? Keep in mind, these terms come from Michael Goldsby, who teaches business entrepreneurship at Virginia Tech. <laughs> so he actually used the word evangelist. And it's a little different connotation than we would. But um, what he described, this are, these are four different types of entrepreneurs. And what we're trying to do is to utilize this paradigm into entrepreneurial church planting. Because we're saying that a lot of entrepreneurs have some similar thinking to church planters. What if these uh, church planters are trying to engage the marketplace? So if you remember, I talked about like on the left here, 
uh, entrepreneurs receive either concrete information or abstract. And then once they get that information, they utilize it either to connect with other people, places, buildings, or they explore new possibilities. So the artist here, this is like um, Chris Sorensen, who's a church planter in, um, not Nashville, uh, it's in Chattanooga, Chattanooga, Tennessee. So if you go to Chattanooga and you go inside this coffee shop slash cafe, you'll see that the artistry has like a, a Byzantine mosaic at the front of it with ancient lighting. And the closer you get to the front where the barista is, it's more contemporary. So he's trying to create that like ancient future kind of vibe. And when I went there on a Saturday, you get a, a good meal and some coffee, et cetera. Then that night they have cover charge, they have live music. On Sunday morning, they push the tables to the side, line chairs up, about 150 people are there. And that Byzantine mosaic is the stage for the church service. Okay, so as you walk in, you'll see this kind of ancient future kind of vibe. And that's really what was motivating this church planter. So he was taking the abstract ideals, values, like the kind of way people should feel, and then exploring new connections, new possibilities for that. So that's this first one, this artist. Um, the guy that I mentioned to you before, Sean Mitchell, is the evangelist. So he's the one that meets at uh, 11 p.m. on Thursday nights. He's the guy that was, was looking for ways to understand people's ideals and their tension points and hurts, these abstract kind of things, and then find a way to connect them into the building where they are. And that's where he has the church plant that meets um, you know, after their work hours. Um, the social scientist is the one on the bottom right. This is an exa exemplified by in uh, Selma, Alabama, the home of the civil rights movement, uh, the judge in town comes to Christ. He gets spirit-filled. And he sees the recidivism. Uh, he sees the literacy rates. He sees the poverty level. He gathers all this like very concrete data. And he wants to explore new ways to do church. So he starts a church. It's called Blue Jean Church. And he said, I want everybody to come to church wearing blue jeans so that nobody knows who's the wealthy and who's the poor who's just come out of prison and who's the lawyer, you know, et cetera. And as a result, there's about 200 people, very um, racially mixed, meeting in Selma, Alabama, but it came out of this social scientist kind of thinking, take this concrete data and explore new connections. Then uh, the bottom left corner is the builder. This is a person, um, I have a friend in Ghana, West Africa, Johnson Asari, who is ministering in a very Muslim city in the North and he started a, well, he built this um, hotel. And here's what happens. Muslims come to his hotel and he says, they pay me good money. And with that money, I evangelize Muslims so that we have a church that meets in our hotel. So he says, all the money for Christian ministry comes from Muslims who patronize my hotel. And he said, I don't need money from outside because we have it right here. So he you know, builds a building. And he's now expanding. Um, and that's kind of the builder mentality where he had this like concrete information. There's people that will pay this amount of money for a hotel. And this is how many people need it. And then you start to connect them. So with that paradigm that you, know, you think through, where do you find yourself in there? You know, like on the left-hand side, which type of thinking, what kind of information do I like to receive? And then once I get that information, where does my mind go? Do I start to connect to people, places, buildings, or do I start to explore new possibilities? And that may give you an idea of the type of 
uh, entrepreneur that you may be. Great. Thank you. You bet. That's so helpful. Um, so I love that this whole thought of entrepreneurial church planting, it might sound new and a lot of us feel thrown into it right now because of COVID and everything else. But, you know, you mentioned John Wesley and, and his ministry was funded through his businesses and that's how he started and enhanced um, his impact. But even dating back to that, you know, Paul, Lydia, do you want to talk about other influences or other places where we've seen this entrepreneurial approach? Yeah, totally. Or so this goes back to the very beginning, Genesis, you know, the early Genesis about, you know, co-creating with God and utilizing things of the world to fashion them in a way to give glory to God. That's the whole creation mandate. Um, but we even get this, like uh, some of the prophets, like Amos, you know, this farmer and didn't leave his farming totally, but did both, right? Pastored, farming, priest, prophet, et cetera. Um, I think Paul, when he is with uh, Asil and Perquilla, is probably like the quintessential example. Um, people are often familiar with the bivocational aspect of that. But what they don't realize is this is really an entrepreneurial church plant because what, what Paul the genius of this approach was that he had access to the guild of, of tent makers that only other tent makers had access to. And because he practiced in that guild, he'd have access to networks of people. And uh, Dr. Keener, Craig Keener, a New Testament scholar, has said, in antiquity, where somebody's house was, where you'd lived, was the same place where your business was. So you'd have the business in the front and the living quarters in the back, or the business down below and the living space up top. So when Paul is with Priscilla and Aquila, the very place where he's working is their very house. So we find out later in the book of Acts that Paul writes and says, proceed, uh, you know, greet Priscilla and Aquila and the church that meets in their house. In other words, that's the same workplace, which is where they're meeting it was in their house. So while people often talk about the early missional movement in the church as like a house church movement, it was really also a marketplace movement because where people did their businesses was where their houses were. And, and Paul caught that with Lydia. You know, he, he goes down to the, to the uh, water and he sees this gal there who's a dealer in purple fabric. And then she comes to Christ. He goes back to visit him. And I think this is where Paul gets the idea because he saw he sees what we call now like supply chains. You know, people coming in with dye and with fabric and, and all these people come into our house. It's like a beehive of activity. And then distribution networks, you know, people taken out to this road and that place, et cetera. And all this network of relationships, Paul sees, wow, this is a great place to preach. So guess what happens? What we find out later in, in Acts that a church is planted in Lydia's house which again is the same place where her business was. So there's lots of examples of this. Um, so we have some Old Testament, New Testament, as well as in church history. There's lots of movements that have like been built upon this, the Nestorian movement into China along the Silk Road, 6th century. You know, they were following the Silk Road to commerce and planting churches along the way. Um, I think the whole Wesleyan movement is a great example of it. When, you know, the Methodists went to the... American frontier, they would find out where people were meeting and they'd find a meeting at like forts and storehouses and even gambling houses, et cetera. And um, they were planting churches in those venues, right? So instead of waiting for people to come to you, 
right? They were finding where they were already meeting and then going to them. So Wesley, of course, goes to like brick making factories, coal plants. Um, people may not realize this, but but Wesley's favorite two venues for preaching were in uh, graveyards as well as the center of the marketplace because that's where people were, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, and there's lots of like uh, some theological people that we could refer to, but also uh, examples in history that remind us this isn't a new idea. I think what's happened is since the Industrial Revolution, the place where we work and where we worship and where we have our families start to differentiate, divide. Before that, though, where you worked and where you worshiped and where your family was, was very close. So in a way, we're going back before the Industrial Revolution to see what was torn out of the fabric of our culture in order to bring it back into a church plant. Wow, that's great. This is so helpful. I'm just absorbing all of this information. (laughs) Um, If you guys who are listening in live have any questions, you can type those in the chat feature so we can try to tackle any questions you might have that Jay hasn't already answered for us. But um, as we wait for some questions to come in, something before we started recording and everyone was in that I would just love for you to share with our audience were some of the percentages you were talking about, about giving. I know a lot of times when I... I'm having Zoom calls with other planters where we're checking in and saying, oh gosh, is your giving going up? Is your giving going down? What have we seen since the shelter in place stuff and COVID in terms of percentages of online giving or overall giving? How are we doing? Yeah, there was an analysis done by some accountants that found, and this is recently, they found that 54% of churches saw a decrease in their giving since the beginning of the COVID situation. Um, now, it's interesting, there was a 90% increase in online giving. Now, that would make sense, right? If you can't give in person, you can go online. But if there are groups that are not facilitating online giving or the people are not trusting it or whatever, then that's a big opportunity cost. That's a big loss there. Um, so, But even 54%, even those that found an increase of online giving, there were still 54% of those that found a decrease. So. We don't know what's going to happen, you know, once things start to open up again, but it does point out these questions that we've been talking about, like suppose ties and offerings are not sufficient. You know, what am I going to do? How are we going to survive? And um, the, the missional equation is this, like suppose no matter how great your preaching, your building, and your programs are, people are not going to come to your church. Now that is a hard pill to swallow. <laughs> Um, because a lot of pastors, they say, well, if I just had better preaching, if I had better building, if I had better programs, then I'll get the people to come. But just suppose for a second, if those three, suppose they're the best, you know, in the state, there are large groups of people that will not come to your church that are de-churched and unchurched, no matter how good those are. Okay. So what other options do we have? Now, this sounds very similar to what John Wesley thought through. He said, wait a second, man. I'm not going to wait for people to kind of come into these churches. Let me go find out where they're already gathering. All right. And if I find out where they're already gathering, then we create church there. And, and Wesley's famous for going, like I mentioned, these coal mines, these brick making factories, this, this marketplace engagement. So what I'm saying from a missional approach, instead of waiting for people to come into your church building, instead of simply doubling down on better preaching and programs and buildings, which I'm not against that at all. What if we think through, 
those aren't sufficient for large groups, say millennials, even Gen Z, to come into our churches. Well, how are we going to reach them? Perhaps let's find out where they're already gathering. And most likely they're gathering someplace in the marketplace. Or if they're not gathering, where would they gather if we offered value for them? Uh, That gets us thinking along different types of uh, entrepreneurial approaches. I love that. And that ties into, we're going to be doing a webinar two weeks from now with some of the leaders in the fresh expression movements based on COVID. Like, where are people gathering online? How do we start online third spaces? How do we find them? Because people will still be going to coffee shops. There are lots of businesses that that people will physically gather. But now we're really focused, and I'm excited about this as planters to see where people are gathering online. How could I start a church out of the house party app or, you know, these Zoom (laughs) conversations that we're hosting that people from around the nation are joining in on? So with that in mind, a question that came in was, um, any thoughts on if virtual plants are are more viable now than (laughs) pre-COVID-19? And I know I'm hearing a lot of church planters saying, listen, I'm going to do an online only church, but try to couple it, as you said, you know, going back to the New Testament, with a house church. So people are watching that live stream, but in, you know, small groups of three to four families together who then break bread together and do mission together. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. You know, I think this is pointed out. It's not an either or. I think every church needs to have some type of online platform because you're not usually going to get people just kind of walking off the street, coming into your church until they first visit you online. So I'm a church planter too, right? I'm part of this uh, leadership team of a church plant. It's an entrepreneurial church plant at a coffee shop, et cetera. Um, I had a guy that, that came online for like four or five weeks and he was just streaming with us. And then one week he didn't stream and he posted that afternoon. He said, hey, I went to church. He was from like Georgia and we're living in Kentucky. He said, I went to church today for the first time in 20 years. I was like, Hallelujah. But, but the point to me is people will go online before they go offline. In other words, people will go online either to connect with your church or another church before they have the guts to go in your building. So I think what COVID has shown us, every church needs to have some type of online offering for people. Um, it's not either or. Now, I don't know what other churches are going to do, but our church has decided we're going to keep doing both. And some people may, (laughs) that used to meet face-to-face, they may say, you know what? It's a lot easier instead of getting the kids in the car and getting them to church, they may stay home on Sunday and stream it. You know, I mean, I'm not going to blame them if that's your issue, right? So I think it's really, everybody needs to think through, we need to do both. And most likely you have people that you know of that have tech savvy to be able to do this. Because quite frankly, it doesn't take a lot to be able to do it. Um, but find people that are ready to either like Facebook stream it, Facebook live or, or whatever. It, it doesn't take a lot. And then you have somebody that just kind of follows the chat as it's going and you'll connect with people. Great. Thank you. Love that answer. Um, and we have one final question cause I want to honor your time. I'm sure you have other zoom calls and things mm-hmm. to get to, but we had a question come in and I'm seeing this happen more and more across our nation in the Methodist denomination where the cabinet will appoint a pastor half time to an established traditional church that's been around for 
decades or centuries. And then they'll say, with your other half time, we want you to plan to church. But now you have the benefit of this building that you could use, you know, to, to start a business or to generate external revenue streams. But um, one church planter shared that he's connected with a traditional church like this. They've been renting out space for like 20 years when the money was flowing. The church lost sight of the mission and just focused on that money. And today, with his appointment there, the innovation is gone, attendance has fallen, there's no flexibility in using the building. So how do you keep the leadership culture focused on mission rather than making money? Great I see question. this a lot with preschools too, right? When the preschool yep. money starts coming in, it's all about those number of kids and, and they lose sight of building relationships with those families. Yep, totally. No, it's a great question. Um, this actually goes back to what John Wesley was trying to caution people against, right? I mean, he cautioned people against, he said, you know, I have no doubt that the Methodist movement is going to continue. But my caution is that we'll lose the passion behind it. We'll lose the spirit of it and keep the shell you know, and that's the, the danger. So that's why I thought that first principle we talked about, the triple bottom line, to make sure that every business decision, those three factors are considered. So in, actu- in, in practical terms, what it means, Rachel, is sometimes you take a financial loss in order to have a spiritual gain. Okay. Um, you can't do that all the time. Otherwise, you know, if you're cash negative, you're not going to stay around very long. Um, so I'd have to do this in my own business. I mentioned the tree houses. You know, we have these tree houses where um, on Monday nights, pastors can go for 50% off. So anybody on this call is welcome to come to the Red River Gorge of Kentucky <laughs> for an awesome experience and you get 50% off. And the reason is this, I'm going to lose some money on it. But every time I go to the tree houses, um, my anxiety goes down and my creativity opens up. I want every pastor to feel that way. And when pastors do that, they, they tell me, this has been life-giving to me. I had somebody um, in the notebook that wrote to me the other day, said, you know what? I brought my wife here and we fell in love again. We found love in our relationship again. And I thought, hallelujah, that is worth it. Even though I lost money on the, you know, the transaction, um, it created social capital. It's going to rekindle his spiritual vitality, right? His or her. So... I think one of the first steps is thinking through, make sure every decision uh, in this, you know, entrepreneurship or whatever innovation is started, once money starts flowing, it's not simply uh, a financial bottom line, but you think through, okay, are we creating social capital and spiritual capital here? If not, then we're doing something wrong. You know, we need to rethink this and build that into the warp and wolf of our business model so that, and that's what I've done with these other businesses. When, when I give 50% off, the other partners don't complain because this is part of the model. It means that this is our metric of success, you know? So you can't have a single metric, you know, just simply, are we making enough cash? It has to also have spiritual metrics and social metrics in order to gauge success of that business. Now, um, one last thing I may mention about leadership in this pandemic time you may have heard the book, uh, Canoeing Through the Mountains. Have, have you heard of that? Okay. Um, that's really about leadership during uncertain times. And really what happens in the midst of that book, he's talking about how do you lead when there's no map ahead? Like, how do you lead when you, when you go off the map? And he says in the book, he says, if you want people to follow you off the map, 
you have to make sure you have integrity and competence on the map. In other words, they see you uh, in ministry with integrity and competence. And if you demonstrate that, then they'll be willing to follow you off the map. Okay. And the reason I'm pointing it out here, this comes back to, um, you know, integrity and ministry, like, like your own personal spiritual piety and, and viability. If we lose that spiritual passion, no matter how great the business is or how great the ministry is, we basically lose, right? So if we don't guard against, you know, the, the world, the flesh, the devil, things that want to encroach upon us, then this whole discussion is for naught because you can have a great business and lose your soul. That's no good. That's what Wesley warned against. Um, so I think the question is really about, you know, godly leadership. And it's about maintaining, you know, boundaries, some accountability, making sure there's some triple bottom line kind of metrics to help you stay there so that you have God, the leadership that continues to lead people off the map. If we lose that, then even though the money's coming in, it's, it's of no use, right? And that's basically how I started this time together, Rachel, that if we don't have a missional heart to reach unchurched, de-churched people, that's driving us, that's driving us to go closer to God. It's also driving us to others that our discussion is useless because basically we're just putting off the time that the church is going to close financially. Yeah. When I started my plant 10 years ago, we said we wanted to be a safe haven for spiritual nomads. Like Mm. that's why we existed because there Mm -hmm. were people who just didn't know where they were seen or heard or could belong or be loved and so that was our calling was to help them reconnect to God and to others and themselves. So mm-hmm. um, I'm so grateful for all that you shared, all these great resources. <laughs> I've heard a lot about Todd Bolsinger's Canoeing the Mountains book. And I know a lot of planters right now are also reading uh, Susan Beaumont's book, How to Lead When You Don't Know Where You're Going, because adaptive leadership <laughs> is so right. important right now. Um, but to, just to add in to your response to that question about how to how do you change the DNA of this established church that's just focused on money, you know, I would recommend having your church leaders read Jay's book for, that he wrote for Exponential called A Missional Approach to the Marketplace, where he talks about the triple bottom line and other things so they can read that together and then figure out how to apply it in their own context because you've create a lot of really great resources that can help church planters out during this time. So I'm thankful for that, for your ministry and your story and the time that you spent with all of us today. So um, thanks and blessings on all that you're going to continue doing. I'm sure I'll be reaching out to you again. My pleasure. Well, uh, do you mind if I pray for everybody here? Would that be good? That would be awesome. All right, let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for every person on this call that has a heart for you. And I just pray you continue to kindle their missional passion. Lord, I pray that you continue to drive upon us those who are outside the reach of the church, but that you love and you call and and you find creative ways to help us engage them, whether it's in the marketplace, whether it's at 11 p.m. on Thursday night, wherever they are. Help us, Lord, to listen to your call. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to guide us in ways that are beyond our own wisdom, but give us your wisdom to reach these people for your glory. Lord, protect us from the dangers of dealing with money, but also give us eyes to see the potential of ways to engage people in the marketplace. 
thank you for Rachel and this time together. Pray your blessing upon this church planting movement, as well as each of these church planters and their families. I pray that you give them life-giving times today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank My you pleasure. so much. Thank you all. Field Preachers Podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.